hear me. А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая. Лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? Отныне русские земля единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali. This is the Roost Files Unite film podcast where we discuss Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Martin Kessler. Hi, Martin. Hello. Uh, thank you for letting me worm my way onto this podcast. <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming on. So, uh, Martin, before we get started, could you tell people a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I'm also a podcaster, usually over at Flixwise, where I work um, as a producer on the main show, and I also have a spinoff now, the Flixwise Canada, where I talk about maybe a little bit more esoteric films. But the main show is going through the sight and sound list, the top 250 films uh, supposedly ever made. So it, it's uh, conversations about a lot of great films, even even some Russian ones. So there's a little bit of overlap. Yeah, it's it's it seems to be like Russia is, despite being super important in early-ish cinema, they haven't you know the country hasn't produced films particularly that are famous outside of of, of russia i'd say yeah. like most people who are kind of like into films or semi into films will have heard of tarkovsky and will have heard of uh eisenstein right eisenstein if you're doing a more <laughs> russian russified pronunciation but yeah kind of beyond that at least for me probably unless you're properly into films you're struggling to come up with 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 more names than than those two guys right uh yeah that that's sort of what i found um i mean i i don't like the silent era stuff as much i i like a lot of silent films but the russian films in particular haven't spoken to me as much i don't know if that's a byproduct of having to watch Battleship Potemkin uh, maybe a dozen times in film school. Like, that, that's not an exaggeration, but yeah. uh, I, I've always sort of been more interested in the the, the post-Stalin era films. Uh, some of them I'd seen just through my father, who had watched them when they originally came out. Uh, mm. Some I saw a little bit later on. I um, spent a semester at the Film Academy of Beijing, and they, they studied a lot of Russian films, Soviet films there. So it was kind of my uh, big exposure, I think. Um, I, I think it's funny going to China to learn about Russian film. but <laughs> yeah, Yes, because uh, those two, yeah, not um, after initially being like, hooray, we are communist brothers. They were kind of like in the mid-60s. <laughs> yeah, mid -60s, there was a bit of a like, falling out, yeah. We don't think you're doing communism properly. Well, we don't think you're doing communism properly. <laughs> <laughs> right but um yeah that that was the first place i'd actually seen a film that had to do with alexa german uh even though it wasn't actually not now you wouldn't call it a russian film it's uh full of author it's a kazakh film sort of about a medieval kazakh uh civilization that was crushed under genghis khan that was a really great film which alexa german and his wife uh wrote and direct uh They, they, he didn't direct it, but he wrote and produced it. Uh, so, like, I... Actually, I don't think I even saw the whole thing. I think I saw uh, an excerpt when they were talking about Ashes of Time. It was, like, during a lecture. So for years, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking, oh, what what's this you know, sepia Genghis Khan movie? I kept trying to find it. And I didn't really find it until after Hard to Be a God came out. And I sort of dove into Alexei German's filmography. And then I saw... Uh, All his films, I guess, everything he had something to do with. I, I immediately tried to seek them out. And I guess you didn't actually introduce the film yet. I'm sorry. I was like sliding into it. <laughs> but That's that's fine. No, no. So, 
yes, because we uh, when we were talking about uh, about maybe doing doing a show together, you sp- specifically when I asked, you know, which which directors would you be interested in in covering? You were you were like, um, yeah, Alexei German. I mean, like like you, he wasn't somebody who was particularly on my radar, and you know, this is going to be the first film of his. I've actually seen but it was like like uh, like with with you sort of although you, you obviously mentioned the the Kazakh film that he co-wrote with his with his wife it was hard to be a god that made me really aware that he was a director mm-hmm. of significance because I I was still living in Moscow when when that film came out so I started seeing the posters for Trudna Buit Bagom and just like it's one of those titles where you kind of go uh, which is uh, sorry for non-Russian speaking listeners. That's that's hard to be a god in Russian. Um, yeah, that was kind of like it's one of those titles where you go, ah, that is an interesting title. I wonder what that's about. And I still haven't seen it to this day. But the way it's been described to me, it almost sounds like the film that Andrei Rublev would be if Tarkovsky was a nihilist who woke up in a bad mood all the way through the shoot or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of comparisons, especially to uh, Andrei Rublev, but I, the more I kind of look at it, like there's obviously a lot of overlap, but the, the, the just more different I find it is, and mm. the more uh, specific I find German's particular vision, you know, he was part of the same generation as Tarkovsky. He was... Uh, a couple of years younger, but essentially the same generation that came up with uh, Larissa Spietko and, you know, all those great uh, filmmakers of, of that time period. Sort of and, mid, mid to late Soviet period, really. Right. Yeah. So, like, I always think, you know, in some ways, The Heart to Be a God feels like the last gasp of that era of filmmaking, this sort of weird artifact from... You know, time when filmmakers like Tarkovsky still roamed the earth. Um, yeah, because of because of course Tarkovsky died pretty young, and yeah. uh, Shapitko even younger. I mean, she was like she, she died young, also. Yeah. You know, so th- there weren't um, there weren't that many peers at a certain point for German, and from what I could find, it seems like he was always very. Uh, well, maybe not always, but uh, at a certain point, he was very, very highly regarded, but mostly within Russia, because I guess his films didn't get huge releases outside the country. Uh, I mean, Tarkovsky said that my friend Ivan Lapshin, the film we're going to be talking about, was the greatest Russian film ever made. People really respected him. And like, I, I think he's maybe more of a peer to Tarkovsky than somebody who's making film like in the tradition of Tarkovsky you see like certain filmmakers they try to emulate Tarkovsky especially I I think today or people who are a little bit younger or even like filmmakers who started off in the Soviet era like uh, Alexander Sukharov you know he had to do Days of Eclipse which is kind of like his version of Stalker or like you know they're, they're kind of in some ways imitating what Tarkovsky did and uh, I think German it, it sort of feels like you know, not not a descendant, but a, a cousin film to <laughs> Andrei Rublev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because he wouldn't have grown up watching Tarkovsky films. He would have been making his own films, and right. you know, probably hanging out with Tarkovsky <laughs> from time to time, or you know, going to similar like. <laughs> I mean, I have this is like revealing my spectacular ig- ignorance about how how the Soviet film industry works. But just you know, they're your peers, as you say, rather yeah. than rather than yeah, somebody I guess, being like a successor. It, yeah, Tarkovsky was based in uh, Moscow. You know, his first few films were for uh, Mosfilm, and sure. Alexei Garman was in Leningrad in uh, Saint Petersburg today. And I guess, like, after a while, they had, like, a phone correspondence. They wouldn't run into hmm. each other much in person, but they were uh, telephone buddies at a certain point. <laughs> and uh, I think... Yeah, because back then, you couldn't just pick up and move city, you know, just because you felt like it. Yeah, um... yeah, yeah. I think s- sort of when Tarkovsky died, or even going a little bit earlier when he uh, expatriated, it kind of left Gorman with that title. Like, he sort of inherited the, you know premier Russian filmmaking title, but, you know, he has very few films, even less than Tarkovsky. And I, I think they complement Tarkovsky's films as well. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I keep telling people like, oh, Alexei German, he's the other greatest Russian filmmaker. You know, there's Tarkovsky and there's German. They kind of go a little bit hand in hand, I think, if you 
watch their filmographies uh, side by side. I, I think they actually almost interlock in a way that that's sort of exciting to see. They they kind of cover different aspects of uh, sort of similar similar topics, or not not just Russian life, but they I think like part of the the human experience. They're, they're kind of coming at them from different perspectives. You know, I think Tarkovsky's more mystical and Alexei German's more corporeal you know he's interested in the body but they both have sort of a poetic quality they're both sort of you know even you you could say a, a spiritual quality to their films but I think in German it's a little bit more rooted in in human beings you know I think like maybe uh, he's more of a humanist uh, you know, people will call Heart to Be a God nihilistic, but it, I think like, <laughs> it is sort of a strangely humanist film. I, I think he's just sort of somebody who doesn't shy away from the darker aspects of life, and he tries to show people in a very uh, truthful way. Yeah. So if we want to be super pretentious about it, we could we could almost almost call uh, Tarkovsky like the uh, uh, the the Plato of of like uh, Soviet slash you know. Russian filmmaking and uh, and uh, German being more of a like a sort of Socrates, sure, we Socrates, go with that. not Socrates, uh, Aristotle type figure. Um, sure. Just from what you've said, <laughs> one being that, more that works uh, too. I'll, I'll go with that. Why not? <laughs> yes, it's 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 not a proper film film discussion unless you bring some pretension in. Surely. I, I know we, we're talking about Russian film. We got to up the pretentiousness that right right i mean it not as much as you know if we were talking about french film but you know (laughs) right right uh yes um so um yeah so this film specifically um my druk ivan lapshin Mm -hmm. my friend ivan lapshin it's set in the stalin era is that correct like yeah it's sort of the beginning of the stalin era um I think it goes from 1935 into 1936. When you watch it, like it, it sort of goes into the new year, new year a little bit. So it's gotcha. just before the big purges, uh, which it's. I think it's sort of key when watching the film. But uh, have you? This is going to be your first time watching it, right? It is. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've seen I'm a excited. little tiny bit of the of the initial setup, so I know that it's partly told as like a memoir mm-hmm. uh, or like somebody's memory um but i haven't got into the proper main action really um although that's interesting that that has that framing device because as i understand it it's actually based on a novel by alexei german's father yuri so yes it yeah kind of it's very loosely based i'll, I'll say I, I checked out the novel and it takes a little bit from some of his other writings too but uh Yuri German, his writing, I think it's much more rooted in in sort of a pulpy romanticism. You know, he was a real, uh, you know, true believer, communist, uh, you know, even Stalinist in the era. And mm. uh, <laughs> I like, uh, you know, if you read some of the interviews with Alexei German, he talks a little bit about his father's writing because he's adapted it more than once. He's worked from his father's stories, but he's in some ways very critical. Like, I, I think he's almost making a response to what his father was writing uh you know he had sort of a complex relationship with his father i think uh you know he got along very well with him as a person but was very especially as he grew older critical of his father's uh politics and also maybe just his artistic tendencies or his uh discipline as a writer so it's sort of it's almost the inverse of what you usually hear with like a creative father son or you know parent child pairings where you know maybe they uh inspire them artistically but uh don't get along well at home or you know you hear like uh Hayao Miyazaki and his son Goro Miyazaki (laughs) talking about things like that uh but it's interesting to see how uh I I think Alexa Garman sought to de-romanticize that era because for a lot of people like 1935 36 there's like this sentiment um that existed i guess at the time when the film was made and you still kind of hear that persist you know to this day that some people say well the 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 communism was inherently good it was just corrupted you know either by stalin or like you know they, they sort of see it as a kind of fall from grace yeah, you know, like that... it would have been fine, and then it went off the rails, and either that was Stalin's fault or that was somebody else's yeah. fault. But you know, basically, you had a good thing 
that just didn't work out. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've definitely and encountered that sentiment quite a lot. I, I think you know this film sort of you know, part of the intent with it is to disprove that just by trying to show that time period as truthfully as possible by kind of mm. pulling that. You know, if you watch a, a film from that era, like it's usually very glossy and romanticized the way it depicts the period, the way people uh, try to represent Russian life. You know, like I, I think German was very critical of some of the filmmakers who came up during that time, like Vertov, who's most famous for Man with the Movie Camera. And, yeah. You know, he's, he was a genius, but he also made a lot of propaganda films. He made a lot of sort of almost like newsreel type short films where. You know, German said, uh, he, you know, he, I'm sure he's in some corner of Dante's hell. Like he lied about everything, about about what life was like. So it, it's difficult to untangle that that time period and try to get to what it was actually like. But uh, that that's one thing I find very interesting about this film. So I'm, I'm curious to see what you're going to think of it. I'm anxious. Yeah, I'm <laughs> just looking at the date that it was it was made, 1985. I was I was thinking. Just knowing that it tackles the Stalin era, and and knowing mm-hmm. that that Garman was was you know not not you know a true believer as yes. far as like the communism, just kind of thinking, how did he get this made? Because if it was but made you know nineteen nineteen eighty six or nineteen eighty seven, it's kind of like okay, Perestroika and Glasnost are you know in yeah. full swing at this point, and you know you can basically say what what you want about Stalin at that at that point. But in 1985, or you know before that, when you're yeah. you know you're pitching you're pitching your <laughs> your film idea to uh, to the bosses at Lien Film and saying, okay, I'm going to make a film about the Stalin era. They're probably going to be like, mm, what are, are you, you planning on saying? <laughs> well, he, he got into uh, trouble a couple of times uh, with his previous films. And I think people knew to keep an eye on him. He had kind of a long running feud with the, the head of the film guild <laughs> at that time. So the film actually, he started working on it in 1979. Mm. And I, I know a big part of that was just to collect all the props that you see in the film and to work on the writing. But him and his wife, uh, Svetlana Kamerleta, they were sort of, I think, deliberately deceptive in the screenplay. And, you know, the film, it's constructed in such a way that you could mistake it for just sort of a slice of life type film without really understanding uh, that you're meant to read in between the lines in a lot of cases. Okay. Uh, and it was completed, uh, I'm not sure, sometime in the early 80s, and he was uh, fired, and the film was shelved for a, a period of time. He was fired from Len Film. And then, I guess, uh, when Perestroika began, it, it was kind of pulled from the shelf and held up as an example of what it should be sort of reflecting on the past. And that that's kind of what saved it uh, from total obscurity. Yeah. So it, it actually had quite a big release. Uh, I heard at the time there were lines around the blocks to see it. And it's a film that played on television quite often afterwards. And it even uh, had some release outside, uh, outside Russia, you know, it played in all the big film festivals and kind of, you know, German was never really that well known outside of Russia, but that was sort of the closest, you know, he was uh, on the Cannes Film Festival jury, you know, he was on a lot of international, I guess, uh, not press junkets, but like, you know, you'd see him do talks, you'd see him yeah, the, the in film New York, circuit. you know, he sort of did the film circuit and like for a little yeah. while it seemed like, uh, you know, maybe he would be better known. And then he just kind of ended up in this long period of time where his projects kind of <laughs> kept being derailed. You know, he tried to make yeah. Hard to Be a God in the late 80s and that ended up being made as an East German film production instead. Mm-hmm. He tried to do a film based on um, The Black Arrow and that fell apart he tried to do a film based on uh, i don't know if you know the author uh, eugene schwartz who does the no, fairy no, tales no. okay uh he, he was the, the famous uh fairy tale author he did the the 1940s cinderella okay uh but uh, german i guess he spent a summer with him as a child when his father was in some political trouble and mm. uh, he tried to do a version of um one of schwartz most famous plays the dragon which was sort of a a fantasy story that was also allegory for fascism, totalitarianism, uh, communism, and that that actually has a lot of similarities to Hard to Be a God, and that also ended up being directed by somebody else. So he had a few projects ah. that just didn't get off the ground, and then 
the film that uh, followed it up, the Crucialia My Car, that's at the end of the Stalin era. Uh, and that, that film was sort of made in the, the post-Soviet era when <laughs> he, had, he had trouble getting funding, so he would shoot it in bits and pieces over years and years. So it ended up only being released in 1998. Uh, so I think... Yeah. And then on top of that, the, the release was botched. So I, I think just that gap of time between 1984-85 uh, when my friend Ivan Lapshin was coming out and, you know, 14 years until his, his follow-up film just, you know, he kind of disappeared in a lot of people's minds, I think, and never really uh, reemerged until Hard to Be a God, which was released after his death. Yeah, because I think when it came out, it was kind of like, you know, it would say on the on posters, you know, the late, mm-hmm. you know, last masterwork of the recently deceased great filmmaker yeah and, and as you were saying like it's if you're not producing a film every two three four four years right kind of like because everyone else is churning out so many films it's easy to kind of mm-hmm. get forgotten and and especially if you're you know someone someone like tarkovsky or just you know just anyone who's once once they've once they've passed you can kind of make your decision about them being like are they a great filmmaker or not rather than yeah. being like you know they've produced some great stuff but what have they done recently exactly i mean you can look at their filmography as a whole and certain even flawed films become easier to contextualize like i was thinking about yeah. kurosawa i just uh, recorded a episode of the, the high and low podcast which oh awesome <laughs> those guys are great uh but uh, we talked about Todeska dan which is my least favorite kurosawa film and it came mm. at a time when he was having a lot of trouble like it was five years after his previous film redbeard and five years until his follow-up film which was uh, filmed in russia so you know I, I was saying i think uh kurosawa had a suicide attempt after the film had been finished yeah. and i i said you know if he had died then that would have been the great filmmaker who made that kind of weird out of touch one at the very end but because yeah. he lived and he continued to make films and you can sort of look at where his career went you say oh Dodeska Dan, that's you know his first color film and i see where his uh direction of color goes with these uh, painterly films ran and kagumusha and dreams and you can sort of forgive a lot knowing where he goes later in his career so it, it does make a big difference sometimes being able to look at a filmmaker in hindsight, even though, you know, it's a little bit <laughs> cruel to, to artists yeah. to, to only sort of say, well, now that you're dead, I can make my decision about you. Yeah. Turns out you were great. Shame <laughs> you're not around to say that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, I think we should, we should probably, we should probably watch the film. Sounds um, good. So... As uh, as we always do, I, I get my guest to speak a little bit of Russian, and the word we say is "payekhli." Payekhli. Yes, okay. which is what uh, Yuri Gagarin said when he was uh, blasting off to become the first man in space. All right. Okay. So, three, two, one. Payekhli. Welcome back. We've just watched my friend Ivan Lapshin. And before we get to discussing the movie, Martin's going to give us a quick summary of the plot. So this is the spoiler alert section. If you haven't seen it yet and don't want to know what happens, pause the podcast and go watch it. It's only an hour and a half and it's on YouTube, so that should be easily done. Okay, right. Over to you, Martin. Okay. Uh, So the film's set in 1935 over into 1936. Although there's a framing device in present day uh, 1980s of a narrator uh, reflecting back on their childhood. Their childhood self is a character in the film, but not really an essential character. They're more like an observer. They live in the same flat as the main character, Ivan Lapshin, sort of across the hall from him. And he's a detective from Leningrad who's uh, moved out into this a little bit more provincial city town. And uh, he's been tasked with tracking down this gang who's been selling uh, illegal meat. It doesn't explicitly say it, but I think it's pretty strongly implied that they're selling uh, dead people for food. It's, I guess, a little bit of a echo of the, the 1932-33 uh, 
uh, famine. Um, so while that's going on, he's also getting a crush on uh, this actress, Natasha, who's in a play that's coming up. He promises he's going to help her research the role. And there's a bunch of other characters who kind of come and go. It, it's a lot of uh, slice of life type stuff. I don't know if anybody has seen uh, Edward Yang's films, but I'm, I'm a little bit reminded of that when you watch all these threads kind of interwoven. But the crime plot and the love triangle plot are sort of the two big uh, elements, I, I guess. And the way they fit together kind of gives you this portrait of uh, the character of Ivan Lapshin. He's pitched as the, our, our local Pinkerton. You know, I, I think he's a little bit of a bulldog drum and gone communist. <laughs> um, he's kind of a dork, I, I think. You, like, he's uh, trying to win the affections of Natasha, but you can tell she's not really into him. And, you know, he has this sort of romantic ideal of a relationship that eventually gets shot down after the opening night of her play. Uh, which kind of bombs with her role in particular being panned. You know, he climbs up to her window and confesses his love to her, and she says, no, I'm actually in, fr uh, in love with your friend Kanan instead, who is uh, a writer whose wife recently died, and he's suicidal, so he's moved in with Ivan Lapshin. So feeling dejected and a little bit bitter, uh, Ivan Lapshin closes in on the gang. There's a big raid in which his friend Kanan gets his stomach burst and Ivan Lapshin shoots the gang leader uh, in cold blood. Everyone says their goodbyes and that's the surface level story but I think there are a lot of things going on under the surface which we'll get into but they, that's more or less the sequence of events right? Yeah that's that's very succinct yeah because I was I was thinking yeah if you just go through it scene scene by scene it if you describe it that way it sounds kind of like an incoherent mess because <laughs> like you say if you just it's slice of life and if you just took a fairly random year out of somebody's life and just you know dropped somebody in as an observer it probably wouldn't make a lot of sense because you <laughs> and, and especially when you can't just kind of like take somebody aside and go what's going on now here right. um, <laughs> it, it's a little like watching two films at once sometimes stacked on top of each other yeah and a lot of it feels incidental while you're watching it a lot of the dialogue just feel, oh it, it's people just talking but yeah I, the more I, you watch it like I, I think you can still come away with a lot just on one viewing but they, i think it's definitely a film that rewards multiple viewings and you can kind of pick apart the meaning behind some of these little details that seem incidental at the time or just a part of everyday life at the time when you're watching yeah i mean i i feel like i need some more like thinking time with the film i finished it right and i was kind of like Oh, I mean, I was, I found as I was watching it, I, I was thinking, this is, this is interesting, but I don't, I, I don't know where it's going because it's, <laughs> it, you know, you, you keep switching from, you know, one little bit of the, of the plot of the, you know, the, those two main plots to something that's, yeah, more incidental and, you know, just some, some of the police guys like messing around in a room or just, you know, walking from just just kind of on the beat almost like mm -hmm. going around the town yeah um yeah it's interesting your your take on the the lapshin character because i've i found i thought he was quite authoritative in in some ways oh absolutely i, I mean he kind of reminds me of like uh thought before he has the aura of a high school basketball coach you know <laughs> he's mm. he's sort of you know the word people would would maybe use to describe him now or the phrase is uh, white knight you know he's somebody who's got his ideals but you know the the kind of consequence of that is he has that authoritarian streak like you mentioned and you know i, I keep thinking like it's sort of funny the way he tries to flirt with Natasha, I think he's very bad at it, you know, where she talks about, oh, like the, the theater director yelled at me and he says, well, I'll, I'll put him in his place. You know, <laughs> it's his way yeah. of trying to be uh, flirtatious, you know, oh, I'll, I'll defend you. I'll do what's right. And it, it's very unattractive, I find, you know, and yeah. you can kind of see that gap, like he, he's doing everything in his own mind. Correct. You know, he's a product of his time and he, he's going to be righteous and do the right thing. And he has his ideals. And things don't work out for him. 
you know, he sort of feels like that the world should be moving towards this uh, utopia. He keeps saying, well, we'll clear the land of scum and build an orchard. That becomes his uh, catchphrase yeah, almost. Yeah, he uses that a few times and it's kind of like, oh, and the, the way you see he's going about it. And if right. you just know any Soviet history, it's like, that's going to be really bad. Yeah, like, I, I think... I mean, you can talk about the specifics of the film in relation to uh, Russia's history and to the specifically communist ideology. But I think in a broader sense, for me, it's a film about unexamined uh, romantic ideals. I think it's about being able to, in some ways, see yourself in that time period and kind of understand the lack of foresight, the lack of reflection and the really horrible consequences that it'll have. You know, I it's sort of funny, like at the very beginning of the film when he's just hanging out and he's being introduced to all these people, they say, hey, our, our local Pinkerton, you know, the star of many an adventure, Ivan Lapshin, that's how he's introduced. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and people are quite he, admiring. They're quite admiring. Somebody asks him, oh, what's, what's the psychology of uh, killers? And he just sort of says simply, well, they're killers. Like, you know, there's good guys and there's bad guys. And by the end of the film, you know, you see he's a killer. And yeah. you understand what his psychology is leading up to that. So I think it's a really interesting, uh, I guess, insight into why uh, certain ideals of human nature fail. You know, <laughs> I think why why we fail when we try to be good or try to reach our ideals sometimes, how those can have negative consequences when we don't really understand ourselves. Well, and and the whole, you know, the end always justifies mm-hmm. the means. I mean... Personally, I think that's that's almost that attitude is almost the definition of of evil. Right. <laughs> if 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 you're the kind of like have the attitude of well, if it gets the job done, then you can do whatever. Yes. Yeah, that's going to have some terrible consequences. <laughs> the the film like it's there's a lot of optimistic sentiment in the film. You know, oh by by 1937 we're gonna have this. By 1938 champagne production's oh, gonna be yes. up to this. And like you just know it, it's gonna get worse. You know, like this is supposed to be the the ideal period of you know of the Soviet Union. Like Alexei Gorman said that before he set out to make the film, he was kind of forewarned about criticizing you know 1934 35. You know, when around the time the film was set, because uh, apparently he was told, well, Stalin was bad, but those years were beyond reproach. Those were good years under communism. And like yeah. he finished that anecdote by just kind of looking into camera and saying, there were no good years under communism. <laughs> like the the very end of the film, when his uh, not Kanan but the other friend uh, Okoshkin. Yes. Uh, he says it was just a bad year when they're kind of reflecting on everything. And like, yeah, that, you know, it seems like a very simple statement, but that's such a bold sentiment to come from a film from this time period in this context, yeah. you know, that very, you know, daring in a very understated way. Like, I, I think some filmmakers, the, the tendency would be more to kind of make things extra bad and make things terrible in this reign of terror. But what's sort of maybe more effective is just how casual everything is in it and how kind of like you have bad years sometimes, but you don't expect that it's going to go from bad to cataclysmic, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I can imagine if you see this film, you know, without knowing mm-hmm. much of the much of the context, especially if you don't know the significance of like... 35 36 and, it, yes. and especially the year following 37 was like the real height of the stalinist purges you'd kind of be like maybe not you know what's the big deal but like yeah you, right the, i mean the, a lot of say, uh, international critics i think didn't pick up on that you know i was reading some criticism from when the film came out you know you had people like jonathan rosenbaum sort of praising the authenticity and the costumes and the performances but kind of shrugging when it came to any sort of thematic interpretation. He, he just didn't, I think, understand the context. And I mean, it doesn't take much context, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know if it's it's like a <laughs> lack of education, but, you know, if the film were set in Germany in uh, 19, you know, in the same year, say uh, 1935, yeah, 36, yeah. and, you know, we're looking at a group of Jewish characters, like, I, I think most international audience would recognize, oh, they're in the first act of a Holocaust film, even if they yeah, don't realize yeah. it. You know, you kind of don't realize you're in a film about, uh, you know, an atrocity when you're just yeah. moving along at the pace of life. So I think that's one of the, the tricks of the film is just how it seems slice of life, but it's building up to something more, uh, something mm. darker. Yeah, there's there's a a, a really 
clever little cut that they do. I marked it as being like 14, 15 minutes in. And basically, Ivan wakes up in the middle of the night, kind of in a cold sweat. And he's, <laughs> he's, he's quite upset. And the, the scene plays out. And he just says, you know, I've just got to go somewhere. And then the cut is you hear like, it sounds like three or four gunshots. And then the next scene, you're going into an orchestra, like yes. uh, like a band being struck up. So mm-hmm. initially, because I knew this was a film set in this period, I'm like, is it just going to cut to him having just killed some people or, you know, something more explicit? And it's kind of like, okay, I think I'm still supposed to take that he's been out in the night and, you know, right, done something like that. But it's kind of like... It's almost if you're not watching for it, you'll miss it. But it does sound like gunshots mm-hmm. and then a band, you know? I mean, there's quite a few things like that in the film that you could miss on, on first viewing or, you know, miss without a little bit of context. Like, what's sort of funny is the film's sense of humor. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I find it quite a, quite a funny film. and But a lot of the jokes are implying something more than just, you know, a little bit of levity. Like... uh there's quite a few jokes about reporting on people. Oh yeah, I'll, like you know, have you taken away. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that you you ate your husband. I'll have you sent off. You know, mm. and you know they, they it's um it's sort of understood that the gulags are already in place. You know, I think some people assume it it just kind of started in in 1937, but the, the gulag system was already in existence at this time. And you know, at the very end, like the there's the prostitute that Natasha has. Ivan introduce her to to research her role in the the play. She's playing a prostitute, you know. And at the end, you know, she's she's sent off to a gulag. That's yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, it's sort of they don't think too much of it, but like you know, in in not much time, most of these characters are going to end up in the same place. Yeah, yeah, most likely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Alexei Garman said the reason why he cast uh, the the actor plays Evan Lapshin, Andre Boltnev. Uh, he said it's as if he had the seal of death on his face. Like, you just know this guy's not going to make it through <laughs> through it all. He's just uh, doomed in some way. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I think I've seen a... that quote as well. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, like, in some ways, he, he was maybe correct about the actor because he, he died quite young. I think he was uh, 49. He had a stroke and just killed over not long after the film. Yeah, a couple of years after the film was made, he had a couple other roles. But, um, you know, there is just something doomed, you know, when you, you see him, like, especially... You know, when he wakes up at night and like later on, you find out that he was a, a veteran from the Civil War and he, he still has post-traumatic stress yeah. and it was never really dealt with. Yeah, I mean, that that whole, I mean, going into the like late 80s, 1990s, even now, like mm-hmm. post-traumatic stress is not something that people have found very effective ways to ways to treat, but at least they try at this point. Whereas back right. then it was just like, yeah, you were in the war. Yeah, fine. I mean, a, l- a lot of the time it wasn't even acknowledged. Like I, I was no. talking to somebody not that long ago about uh, like all, all the people coming back with post-traumatic stress from, uh, you know, recent wars in the world. And they were like, well, like that, isn't that weird that, you know, not that many people from World War II had post-traumatic stress. And I, I said, like, I'm pretty sure they did. It just wasn't talked about or dressed or dealt with, you know, like there's uh, there's that John Houston documentary. I, I think it's called Let There Be Light, which was about American soldiers with post-traumatic stress. But like, it, it was really rare to see that, you know, even in, in like 1980s when this film was made, uh, to even see that really talked about openly or understood <laughs> so that yeah there's a number of things like that where you know in the film it, it's just dealing with you know real issues even if they were taboo yeah i almost don't know where to, t- <laughs> where to <laughs> well i'm curious like how did you find that the representation of the time period like I, I think again you know looking at a lot of the films set in this time or made in this time they tend to be very idealized romanticized like to me this felt like one of the most not necessarily realist because like the, you know the social realist style that's a whole nother thing this film yeah, isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. in the social realist style but it felt like the most natural or authentic representation of the time period i'd ever seen on film you know it, it feels like somebody just took a camera and went back in time a lot of the shots are handheld it feels very organic you know and uh german has this technique which he's, he's sort of developed and built upon throughout his career of having people glance into camera and that's usually you know a big 
no, no. They, they say it's going to, you know, break the fourth wall, the the illusion that you're watching a movie. And uh, it's not done like a, like a documentary. You know, it's not done like an episode of The Office where it's meant to be as if there's a camera crew really there filming. But still, like, it, it, he never really pretends that the camera isn't there. It, it, it's a very strange, almost uh, contradictory approach. But I find it, it reinforces that reality so much, feeling like these people could just glance into camera and it feels like you're in some way, you know, re- meant to reflect on these people. Like it, it's a mirror almost that they're staring at you and you're staring at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was interested just in terms of the, the way that the camera gets in really, really close and you kind of think like, that must be really quite hard to to act around. Yes. Um, Just from a practical, but it doesn't, but it doesn't, you know credit to the to the actors they you don't really get the the sense that it's impeding them from doing doing their work but it is yeah you you think how that that must that must take some getting used to and and as and as you say yeah you do have the the occasional like yeah people glancing into the into mm-hmm. the camera i mean i didn't i didn't notice too, that too many times but yeah certainly ivan does it a few times and i'm like that's that is sure. odd you don't see that I mean, there's a couple of like uh, people on the the streetcar. One just stares in through the window, or you know, somebody walking through the crowd at the end of the film just stops and turns. Like sometimes just strangers, even not even the main characters. Always, uh, you know, it's it's unusual, but I find it really really effective. You know, you sort of have this immediate attachment to these people. I think uh, the the way Gurman explained his research process for the film, I think it probably came from. Uh, like footage of the time period he said because he didn't really trust archives and researching he he went through a lot of um, oral history a lot of atypical uh, research sources so he said you know for instance they would watch footage of people putting up you know maybe telephone wire or pipes you know that was uh, only incidentally capturing people because that showed people in their everyday life uh, I guess in a way that wasn't posing for a camera or acting to a camera or wasn't arranged and people would look into camera. And I I think a little bit of it comes from that, you know, it has that feeling that, you know, most of the time people just sort of ignore that it's there, but every once in a while, somebody just kind of can't help but look over, you know, I think I would have the same, you know, type of footage if I went to downtown Toronto and just set up a camera and started filming without really drawing attention to myself. I, I think it would look a little bit like that. Yes, yeah. I mean, I've I've have d- done a little bit of photography in events mm-hmm. where, you know, you're wanting to get close ups of people, and <laughs> yeah, you just have to kind of keep moving along before before people sort of notice that you're that you're there, right? But um, I, I, it's strange because it's all rehearsed, it's all arranged, you know. So yeah. it, it's this very intricate uh, reconstruction to give you the the impression of something spontaneous you know there, there's a lot of spontaneous moments in the film that are of course carefully orchestrated so it's you know it's sort of antithetical to the documentary process but i find you get that kind of authenticity that you know you would if maybe somebody could have really made this film back then you know you know yeah. no film looks like this from from that period or really any period but uh, th- that's the feeling I have is, is oh, you know, if somebody took a camera back in time, this is maybe what they would come up with. Yeah, I would I would definitely like to see that uh, his approach to, to shooting that subject applied, applied to, diff- you know, to different, mm-hmm. different, you know, times and times and places just because, yeah, I, like you say, it is, it, it does, it, it does feel sort of like, like watching a documentary, but not, like you said. Right. I mean, it's very unusual in Hard to Be a God because that's science fiction film. It's this sort of medieval reality where, like, I've heard a lot of people comment, oh, it was like being on another planet, you know, and it has that kind of documentary, almost uh, sense of authenticity, but you're watching uh, a constructed reality, a, a constructed epoch, not something that was ever real, you know, so it, it's yeah. a really kind of a jarring effect where you know you're watching something fantastical but it feels it feels so real <laughs> so yeah it's it, yeah. yeah it's from of course anything from the pre photographic era where you can't even you know go and look at photos from the time period and reconstruct mm-hmm. it you're just totally going from you know 
artistic interpretations and, and written sources. Yeah, that that it, yeah, because anything from that time is always presented in a in a certain in a certain way, like a more sort of I guess epic style. Yeah, this isn't epic at all. It, it's totally intimate. You know, German's approach. It's like you said, often very close up, almost too close. You know, his framing tends to be very very tight. Uh, you know, it goes for intimacy. It's like he's trying to show you less and the frame feels very compacted. There's a lot of visual information. There's photographs in the background. There's several layers of people. It, it tends to feel very cramped, cramped, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I found I found that I would get more out of this from repeated watching, partly just because my my levels of Russian aren't as good as I would like them to be. And a lot of the time you have multiple characters talking at yes. once. And yeah. and so, you know, the this the subtitles, which, you know, for this YouTube version aren't aren't s- superb. No. <laughs> but it's but they're given a very difficult task because in a more like traditionally made film, you don't have people talking over each other. But then that's that's one of the, I guess, one of the other characteristics of the film that make it seem so lifelike is that in real life that totally does happen. <laughs> right, I, you know, it does capture those rhythms of life, but like you said, it's uh, it's quite a intricate soundscape, and I, I think that's another reason why German's films have had difficulty finding an audience outside of Russia is they're notoriously difficult to subtitle. <laughs> mm, I, yeah, you know, I, I don't usually. And I, I don't mind uh, dubbing. I almost think if somebody had a lot of uh, resources at uh, their disposal, they should do a very good dub of the film because I, I think that might actually better represent what's going on than trying to subtitle everything. You know, you always lose something in the performances, but I, I think, you know, that sense of people talking over each other, people bursting into song and the radios playing in the background and... You know, sometimes you do just catch this snippet of something that you realize is actually important or tells you uh, something crucial or gives you insight into what's going on or this world, you know. But I, like, I, I think it's interesting that the narrator, it's them thinking back to their childhood because it almost makes me think of, you know, when you're a kid and you're surrounded by adults, how how much goes over your head. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, it made me feel a little bit like that. Saying, oh, well, like, I, I understand that I don't get everything. I'm just going to try to get as much from context as I can and try to follow along. And, you know, later, maybe further down the line, you know, like the characters looking back with hindsight, you know, if I go back and rewatch the film again, maybe I can understand more. I can get more of a grasp you know maybe even more than what the characters have of themselves you know they don't realize that anything they're saying might be significant but you might when you watch it a second time yeah yeah i mean speaking of things in hindsight like right at the uh beginning of this part you you mentioned the thing about the implication is that the gang are you know selling human meat Mm -hmm. as 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 meat and passing as soon as you said that i was kind of like yes that that makes so now that you say that that makes so much more sense of some of the things that i've seen i especially like there's one there's one scene where they go into this kind of like it's kind of like a bunker or or a cellar that's like a cellar it's not in the bottom of a house though it's 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 out to the open and they talk Mm -hmm. about witnesses and you have these bodies coming out and i was kind of like okay so that's you know that's been murders that was committed by the gang, but I didn't right. quite know where they fit in the jigsaw. And then later, so. the um, the accomplice they arrest is a butcher. Mm, oh, you know, so, like it, it's all you know insinuations. Yes. You know, I think right, and he and he's <laughs> and he's constantly saying, "I didn't know anything." Yeah, <laughs> and um, and Lapshin's basically like, you know, I'm gonna hang you like a dog, and he's just right. like. But but I didn't know what was going on. I didn't realize I was yeah. That oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the the word he uses it's like a word for beef, and then the word or the phrase Lapshin uses it's like illegal meat, which is very ah. peculiar. But I you know it, it's full of things like that where oh there's more going on here than meets the eye. I think it, it's a film that you can kind of keep coming back to and finding more layers in and that, that's one reason why i've really fallen in love with it. it it's like you know for an hour 35 minute film it feels like just infinitely dense and complex you know you can kind of keep pulling things out of it and just the construction of it is so 
uh, elegant. You, you know, I mean, it, it, like you said, it's difficult to maybe summarize, but for a film that addresses all these things that has elements of uh, purges and gulags and famine just kind of rolled into something that feels so simple on the surface, I, I think it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's... People say, you know, brevity is the is the soul of wit and getting all that much into, into yeah, like you say, a 90-minute film <laughs> and doing it, <laughs> covering the sort of ground that, you know, you might have to... You know, other directors would take two and a half hours. Yeah, or more. I mean, there's a film... Uh, I don't know if you know that the Torpedo Bombers uh, was a film that came out before Ivan Lapshin was released, but it was... Um, it was written by Alexa German and his wife. Uh, I think German did have a screenwriting credit because he, it was like while he was fired after ah. Lapshin was completed. And that that was directed by um, a director, uh, Aranovic, uh, Semyon Aranovic. And after that, uh, they had like a little bit of like a soft falling out. Aranovic went and made this film, uh, Confrontation, which is like a six hour long uh, like I, I think it's kind of a ripoff of Ivan Lapshin if you see it. I don't think it's as good, mm. and also it's it's six hours long. But like, you know, it has the black and white in color. It has you know some similar elements. People looking to the camera. It, you know, it even stars the same actor who plays uh, Ivan Lapshin, uh, Boltnev. Uh, you know, so it, it's it's yeah. like I I think he was trying to do the same thing, and it just came out as this like six hour long mess. If you ever. <laughs> See, or I don't I, I don't want to be too too unfair to it like uh, just in in contrast to Ivan Lapshin yeah. I, I think like it, you see oh like it can go badly <laughs> it doesn't necessarily yeah. have to work out in the, this sort of perfectly constructed way it can be this sort of sprawling endlessly sprawling thing that goes through you know years and years and says says a lot without actually saying that much yeah so if people have enjoyed this Alexei German film, where would you direct them next? Uh, in terms of German's filmography, I think maybe the film that makes the most sense to watch after this is Kruschelia Maikar, which is um, about the end of the Stalinist period. And it was... it, it It's not... <laughs> it's not more on the nose, but like just uh, being made in the post-Soviet period, German could deal sort of more openly with uh the purges with stalinism like it's about the uh the doctor's plot uh you you sort of mentioned like i I think in the uh, episode about the death of stalin film yes i was gonna say if people have seen that that's (laughs) yes that's featured in yeah you know it's basically about this uh jewish doctor who gets pulled into the doctor's plot you know without really realizing what's happening while it's happening it's just you know like it's easy to look up on wikipedia now and understand what it is but at the time it was just this sort of nightmare he gets sucked into and he's sent off. The film actually shows the gulags, which, you know, even today that's sort of rare to see on film. Yeah. And he gets pulled back to treat Stalin on his deathbed. And it's this great sort of high and low uh, kaleidoscopic depiction of uh, life under Stalin at that time. And it's so, in some ways, it's so different from Ivan Lapshin. Like all that optimism's gone and it's just replaced with this total paranoia. It's a very different atmosphere, but uh, they juxtapose one another in very interesting ways. Um, his first uh, two solo directed films are war films that pair together well. Uh, Trial on the Road and 20 Days Without War. One sort of more about civilian life. Uh, it's actually a love story. And the other one, it's about um, a, a Russian soldier who was fighting on the German side during World War II. And then oh, he wow. switches sides and joins up with the partisans. But it's very morally complex uh film that it was banned for 15 years so that one wasn't seen as much but that was a big inspiration for uh come and see and the ascent which are considered like the two two big uh soviet war films basically or uh, you yeah, know at, at least two of the biggest on the ones yeah to watch for this podcast <laughs> you know it's uh i don't know i i think a lot of people are coming at his career right now from heart to be a god because that was most recent and it's like in some ways, it uh, it's it's very seductive. This uh, science fiction medieval film where you're wondering what is it even, but I, I think it, it's sort of a culmination of his work, and it, it's almost easier to build up to that one because German's style becomes more and more extreme with every film. You can kind of mm. see his very first film, which he uh, was a co-director on, 
it didn't have much control. It's more in that Soviet realist style. It's actually pretty typical. Like it's not. And he called it a disaster. I think it's just like a <laughs> mediocre film, the the Seventh yeah. Companion, you know. And then after that, he starts deviating quite strongly, and he ran into lots of censorship issues because he he kept addressing difficult subjects. But you know, he was very interested, I, I think, in history. And by the time you get to Heart to Be God, like it's uh, almost an allegory for history. You know, it, it it's uh, it's a complex film, but I, I think it helps if you watch his other films first. You get more of a sense of where he's coming from than trying to approach it maybe through the science fiction genre because I, I find that's not not the most effective way to get the most out of that film, you know? Mm. Cool. Well, definitely, yeah. It's whetted my appetite to see, yeah, more of more of what he's what he's done and and just to. I guess read more about his about his approach because I mm-hmm. I went I went in with this one sort of like deliberately deliberately <laughs> as almost as ignorant as possible just so that um so I'd kind of draw my own conclusions but I mean you've been watching a couple of these uh, Soviet films some from right around this time uh, like how do you do you find it stacks up to you know some of the the contemporary films contemporaneous films um I mean I. I guess uh, the the one that that springs most to mind is it's actually you know just after um the end of the the end of the Soviet Union but um the Yuri Marmin window window to Paris I know that sounds like a weird comparison because that's No no that's, I, a, I, fan, that's a fantasy <laughs> and it's it's not in the in the right. in the Stalin era but just I don't know there's something about the sense of humor in those two two films is mm-hmm is quite similar in the, like there's stuff in i've adopted like the the wallpaper with the hammer and sickles like some of it's i'm, I'm sure it's from something that really existed but it reads like yeah. funny it's just yeah you know uh, there, there's a lot of i mean we didn't get too much into it but there are a lot of jokes in i've adopted or just like funny moments you know there's uh you know when Natasha, the actress, is saying, "Oh, I'm I'm going to be hit as the prostitute," and Ivan Lapshin says, "Yes, you are," and then kind of looks yeah. off after realizing what he just said. Yeah, you know, yeah. Th- there's a lot of things like that. You know, I find, um, you know, maybe I don't know if it's like specifically Russian sense of humor, but I, mm. I find it very funny. And like there is, is a sort of gallowsy, um, isn't it? Yeah, the, 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 it's quite dark sometimes. Um, and comparing it to a fantasy, like I think, even though the film is very rooted in reality, in history, there's also this sort of uh, parable quality to it. I, I think many of Germain's films do have this feeling that you're watching something reduced to the point of uh, parable or simplified to that that point of allegory or parable. You know, where you have a very simple story that you can pull a lot of meaning out of and like even within the film there's sort of mini parables i thought it was funny the the experiment with the fox in the the rooster where you know that the child is guarding them saying no smoking around that the animals oh yes yes. (laughs) you know first time i watched it i thought like is that just the most pathetic zoo in the world or what's going on (laughs) but it's meant to be like this uh experiment to show that well if the fox is fed you know him and the rooster will be friends actually but then yeah. the fox eats the rooster so you know d- yes. to me you know what that says is you know even if the fox is fed uh he'll still be a killer you know yeah, you'll you... you'll still have canes and abels in paradise i think <laughs> so you know even something like that you can find a lot of meaning in so it's it's just a very rich film in that regard yeah and 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 the and the kids response is brilliant is like I'm paraphrasing but it's something like we've run into a snag with the experiment but, <laughs> but research will continue and it's like it's just really funny hearing yeah. that from like a 12 year old <laughs> right because that's that's totally what you know like the official government spokesman would say or like a, you know yeah <laughs> just going back to the to the humor the first thing that you see when when you're you know after the like the 1980s like memory bit that kind of bookends the film (laughs) is this bunch of guys in the in the police station kind of like reenacting an air raid yeah i guess italian yeah world war one uh fighters making all the sounds yeah, I guess this is them taking, you know, based on news reports of of the Spanish Civil War, I guess. Right. Um, oh, the Spanish Civil War, right, right. Yeah, and it's and it's quite funny to watch 
a bunch of grown men doing that. But then you kind of think about, you know, when it's kids doing it, they're kind of innocent of like how horrible war is. But these are grown men who probably have a good idea of what it's what it's actually like, especially as, you know, most of them would have been young men during the Civil mm-hmm. War and probably seen some action with that. So that's kind of like, it's funny, but it's creepy and weird at the same time. Right. I, I even like wondered re- if that triggers Lapshin's first episode where he wakes up in the night. He, he, I think he mentions that he had a nightmare about airplanes. Yeah, it's an interesting reading of that. Yeah, definitely. In in general, like, wrapping back to the theme of people in this film aren't necessarily really thinking very hard about what they're what they're doing and mm-hmm. yeah what effect it might have on people yeah yeah um awesome i kind of i feel like i i think it's a film we could talk about endlessly but yeah i, I think we sort of touched on the you know quite a bit for first viewing i, I think you yeah. know people are, are you know either going to be interested and go out and see it or or maybe stay away i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on paper, it's not the easiest sell. A mostly black and white film um, about the, you know, the period of the Stalinist purges. Um, yeah, and it's uh, and it's, you know, to the. I mean, it's hard for me to tell. I don't think it's as inaccessible as its reputation suggests, or mm. like I, I think, I you know, it, it's difficult for me to say, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's as intimidating as, as sometimes you hear it discussed as i think their man sort of built up this reputation I, some people have even called this film's non-narrative which i think is just untrue you know i think film comments sort of just characterize them that way but you know i think um especially for you know american audiences or a lot of western audiences it's talked about as kind of uh, films where oh, a bunch of stuff happens i don't know <laughs> i i think you know, it, it can be a little bit scary, not completely understanding what's happening all the time, but it's exciting too and funny and charming and very warm. And, you know, I think as critical it is of this time period in these characters, you know, you're spent, you're meant to watch them with a critical eye, but also a loving eye. You know, I think it's at the end of the day, it's a very compassionate film in its own way. Yeah, because I mean, that's, and and that's definitely reinforced that that's the director's in intention like with the the kind of the book in end at the end he's well yeah he even talks about it at the, at the beginning of yeah, it says it's well. his it's declaration like, of love to these people you know and says yeah. it's going to be a sad tale yeah yeah uh, but i had i had a an issue with the translation with that because it, it says it says declaration but the the russian word that he uses is abysnenia which i always understand as explanation which Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, a declaration of love is doesn't sound like it sounds passionate and, you know, right. emotion, emotion driven, but not, you know, not a, there's not much like rational substance. Whereas an articulation of love or uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> whereas, uh, you know, yeah, because uh, I mean, I know as a, like, a translation explanation mm-hmm. of love sounds weird because it's not a collocation that we have. Right. But but it does like it does convey that like, OK, to for you to get this i'm gonna it's gonna take some time yeah <laughs> right that, no that that's a good point to add and yeah it's sort of funny looking at that way like again you know people can it's like sort of strange actually that people watch the film and come away saying well it, it's pretty nihilistic or it's dark but like there's definitely love there and you know maybe it does need a bit explaining a bit of explaining <laughs> I, I don't know yeah yeah all right so um, before we go, is there anything that you would like to direct people towards, Martin? Uh, sure. If uh, people want to hear more of me at all, <laughs> not sure why, but you can check out uh, flixwest.com where I uh, have a lot of great uh, film conversations. It's uh, I'm biased, but I, I think it's a very good podcast. <laughs> and uh, if uh, folks have Twitter, they can follow me at Movie Kessler, and I tweet a lot about movies. Uh, I don't know, Alexi Germán, or, you know, other movies too. Maybe movies that more people have seen. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Martin. I, I really appreciated the insight that comes from watching watching that multiple times and, you know, having just, like, literally come off the film and not really had time to kind of 
sit with it. <laughs> I know. I I was wondering what what your reaction was going to be like. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I feel really lucky to be on this show and be on this episode in particular. And hopefully, we'll have another conversation at least before too long. Awesome. Thanks again. Okay. That's that's all for today, folks. Das Vidanya. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now. <laughs>